Welcome to What Do You Think? I'm Al. Dun 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 dun. Oh my God! No, wait, I got it. Bum 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 so, so yes, we are reviewing potentially uh, the first chapter of the grand finale of the Mission Impossible film series. Has this been confirmed that this is the these two parts will be the end of this version of it? Okay, so uh, that's kind of when they were announced. It was it was announced as like yes, this is going to be. Tom Cruise's last couple go rounds as Ethan Hunt. Mm. Um, but then Christopher McQuarrie, like right around the time they were doing early press for the movie, he was like, no, actually we, we want to keep doing this. So <laughs> who knows? Who Jesus. knows? I'm, I'm working under the assumption that it is because Tom Cruise is over 60. Yeah, uh, he can only he, do this so much. Yeah. He can only do this so much. Uh, so folks, uh, we're reviewing uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part Part One. one. Yeah, Part One, Part One. So, um, I decided to open up this episode with like, so, uh, I think the last time we did a Tom Cruise movie was uh, Top Gun Maverick, which we did with our mutual friend Jay. Yes. Um, I don't remember what was our opening uh conversation about. Um, I feel it was related to the original Top Gun. Okay. I think. Okay. So, um. I, I basically, folks, it's pretty obvious. Uh, we're going to basically talk about the Mission Impossible film series. Um, mm-hmm. I've actually gotten a chance to rewatch most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I literally just didn't get. I watched one, two, three, Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. I was about to watch Fallout, Fallout. but then yeah, but things got in the way, so I, I couldn't get around to it. Um, but <laughs> ironically, I'd only gotten to see one and two. Before I before I went to go see Dead Reckoning Part One, you had never seen one and two prior. No, no, I, I shoot, it's been years. I, I I saw, I saw one and two when I was in high school. The one I'd never seen before was three. Really? Yeah, I'd never seen three before. I, I there was always something getting in the way of me watching three. Um, so I I just watched that after watching Dead Reckoning Part One. Um, For the record, three is my favorite. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Yeah. Um, so, but I haven't seen all of them. I'll admit now. Which ones have you not seen? So here's what I've seen. I've seen one, three, uh, and then Fallout, and now Dead Reckoning. So I've missed quite a few. You you um, haven't seen the you haven't seen uh, Ghost Protocol or or Rogue two. Nation. I have. Well, wait. No, uh, Rogue Nation. Wait, because Fallout was no. I've seen Rogue Nation. I've seen Rogue Nation. I combined Rogue Nation with Fallout. They're 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 dealing with. They have similar situations going on. They're similar okay, yeah. tie-ins. The, the 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 villain of Rogue Nation ties into the villain of Fallout. Fallout. So. so yeah, I yes, I combined the two. Yes, but you've I've never seen, seen Ghost one. Protocol. I've never seen Ghost Protocol. I've never seen two. Um, it just I. I never did, and that, that's crazy. Cause, I, I'm pretty sure I saw. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw. No, 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 no. Actually, I saw. I saw Mission Impossible one and two first, 
And right about the time I was trying to find a way to get my hands on three, uh, Ghost Protocol... Actually, no, I never got around the chance to see three. So, because Ghost Protocol came out in 2011, Ghost Protocol was my very first IMAX movie. Mm. And I saw it at the the closest IMAX to my to my parents' house because it was it was uh, I was on break from college, mm-hmm. and I'm like super excited. I walk into the screening and the screen is like not that much bigger than like a normal screen. Yeah. I was like, what the hell? Yeah. And that's where I learned about like IMAXs, fake IMAX. fake yeah. fake IMAX, where it's like oh IMAX, I prefer that. Yeah, where where it's like it's IMAX, but it's it's a significantly smaller screen. Mm-hmm. Um, because right around, uh, right after, uh, the dark night, uh, like everybody was clamoring for IMAX screens and IMAX was like, all right, so we're going to basically, we're going to basically kind of like license our name out to these screens. Mm. And they weren't really like IMAX, like the, the original IMAX, what it was. In fact, there's only one real like IMAX screen where we live. I thought there and were two. That, well, one one commercial one. The other one. Oh, okay, was, you know you're yeah. right. You're right. I know what you're mean. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That one commercial one. Yes. Yeah. One commercial one. But but anyway, kind of kind of circling back to, to to Mission Impossible. Uh, so see what you know was this a, was this a franchise that you know you grew up with or was this more like I like Tom Cruise. I'll watch this and then once the reputation kind of set in of Mission Impossible, you're like oh. This is kind of like, like must see movie time or what? what was so your... how, how how what's my deal with it? So, yeah. the best way I can describe it is, the Mission Impossible movies were always in the background for a while, and I would take dips in them, but never fully like invest with them because you got to understand the only the only action franchise that I consistently. Let me be clear. I saw action movies, cause, but the only action franchise that I was like fully invested in that had no sci-fi tie-ins, and I mean none, honestly, was James Bond, for the most part, and sort of the Bourne series. But I only started with the second one. I never. It took me years to see the first one. Like a very long time. Wow. Um, so I... Any action franchise that didn't have any sort of sci-fi, fantasy, or genre element in it, I just didn't often get that into. Um, But uh, with regards to the Mission Impossible series, the best way I can describe that is it's always been the franchise I see with friends. Like, obviously you want to go to the movie with friends, but what I'm saying is... You and I are film buffs. We don't have to tell each other this, but there's sometimes there's so many movies out there that we just go to a, we go on our own. It's what we do. Mm-hmm. Like there's a movie we want to see. We don't really know many other people who want to, unless we have friends like you or I, and we just see it on our own because the experience of seeing a certain movie in the theater is worth it more than just waiting a really long time before it ends up now streaming. But in our college days, you know, Blu-ray or something like that, or iTunes. But the Mission Impossible movies were the kind of the thing where it's like, I always went because it was someone else's idea. You know that that kind of thing for you, where or you know if you have a film like that or even a franchise like that. Yeah, like you've yeah, admitted, yeah. For you, yeah. maybe the Harry Potter movies. You didn't see yeah, all yeah. of them in theaters. No, I I only literally saw like the last one and like 
the the second and third Fantastic Beast movies. Exactly. Like, and with friends. Yeah, or exactly. to review this and with with my best friend who's like really into Harry Potter. That's exactly but that's you went because it was for an outside reason. Either yeah. a friend or this podcast. And for me, for a very long time the Mission Impossible series was that for me. Um it just that's the way it turned out. The only reason why I ended up seeing Mission Impossible One though was because it was on I think it was on AMC or TNT, one of those, probably TNT because it was more action. Uh, and it took forever to watch because this is when I, you know, I was much younger and every like 20 minutes there'd be a commercial break. So it felt like the longest movie in the world to me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's sort of what it was for me for just ever. And then now I've, I've continued to see it because, uh, you know, for friends and with friends. And now this one was for friend with friends. I saw it with our friend Jay and for this podcast. Um, and the last one, you, Jay, and I saw it together, I think. No, it was just you, you and me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because okay. we actually went to like one of those. So Fallout was like so popular when it came out that. I remember, yeah. Yeah, that the only place we could find like tickets with decent seating was like one of those like dinner AMC's. Ah, that's right. And we didn't eat any of the meat. We didn't eat the dinner there because yeah, we knew yeah, it yeah. would suck. Yeah. That's right. Oh, I yeah, remember yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, okay. What caused me to watch uh, Mission Impossible? So, uh, I'm not like when, when I was growing up, I, I, I liked uh, a lot of movies Tom Cruise was in, but I wasn't a Tom Cruise fan. Um, like I liked Top Gun. I liked Rain Man. Uh, I liked, uh, 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 what, what was some of the other movies they would play like on cable all the time? Um, he, 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 you know, he had his standard stuff, his standard stuff. Right. Um, so, but I wasn't like a Tom Cruise fan. The reason, so this is actually a funny story. Uh, I was like in high school and I was on a mission to like expand my, my, my film like world. Right. Been there. And what I, been there. Yeah. And what I did was that I took like the, the, the new Hollywood guys and I basically would try to watch a lot of the films I get my hands on. One of the new Hollywood guys was Brian De Palma. And it just so happens Brian De Palma directed the first mission impossible. Uh, later on, I learned that that was a very intentional uh, decision because Mission Impossible was the first time Tom Cruise was going to produce a project of his. This was his first time as a producer, and he wanted he wanted Brian De Palma because the script the script as written was like, oh, this this would be a great like who done it for Brian De Palma to direct. So mm-hmm. you know, I didn't watch it because I was like, I want to see Tom Cruise do the iconic like heist in the CIA uh, building. It was because I was like, oh, I want to see Brian, I want to see a Brian De Palma movie. Uh, and then it just so happened that I, I don't know, maybe I was like skimming through Wikipedia or something that I learned that at the time, Tom Cruise, because he was the producer, he would choose a new director every, every installment because he wanted either wanted to work with the director or there was something about the director's aesthetic that he wanted in the mission impossible movie. So at the time I like, I see Brian De Palma movie. I see Brian De Palma's mission impossible. And then, like, after I do the new Hollywood guys, I'm going into Asian cinema and specifically Hong Kong cinema. And I start watching John Woo stuff. 
And then I'm like, oh, John Woo directed the second Mission Impossible. I should give it a watch. And I watched it. And again, not because I was a Tom Cruise fan, but because I wanted to see John Woo's like American output. You know, I had just seen uh, Face Off, Broken Arrow, and I was like, okay, I'll give I'll give Mission Impossible two a shot. Uh, in fact, the reason why it took me so long to get around to three was because, I mean, at the time, <laughs> at the time, it was like J.J. Abrams was like, who is this guy? Uh, oh, he's like the showrunner of Alias, and that's why Tom Cruise, like Tom Cruise, was a fan of Alias, and he's like, oh, this guy would be great to direct Mission Impossible three, and it had just came out a few years before. Like I was like, okay, I I, I get the idea, whatever. I'll I'll watch it when I watch it. Um, but years pass by. I'm in college now. And, uh, like, I hear that uh, Tom Cruise had chosen Brad Bird to direct the fourth Mission Impossible movie. And what at the time was rumored to be, like, like uh, Tom Cruise's last run as Ethan Hunt. And that they had cast Jeremy Renner to be the quote-unquote new Ethan Hunt. And that this was going to be, like, a passing of the baton movie. That's the, um, What's funny is with Jeremy Renner, that's like he got two passing of the baton big franchises pretty close to each other well relatively and nothing came of that no yeah exactly exactly and the the funny thing was was that um i was like oh that's interesting brad bird because at the time brad bird had made you know he had made uh the iron giant at warner brothers uh he made the incredibles with uh pixar and ratatouille with pixar and apparently Tom Cruise was such a fan of The Incredibles, he's like, this guy would be great for the fourth Mission Impossible movie. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm interested to see a Pixar guy doing live action. Because I had always assumed, in fact, I don't know if I had that conversation. No, I, I, I don't think I knew you as well when 2011. But yeah. I told a lot of my friends in college, it's like, wow, I, I think John Lasseter is going to make the jump to live action and imagine my surprise when well, no, it's not John Lasseter. It's, it's Brad bird. And then followed by uh, Andrew Staten. So like, oh, I was right. curious, I go in there again. Cause I want to, I'm like, okay, Brad bird, how, how's this going to work? Um, and then like in the marketing of the movie, what were they marketing that, uh, the, uh, the Dubai tower thing that, that mm-hmm. oh Tom Cruise actually like scaled the tower it's so crazy and they shot it with IMAX cameras and blah 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 and I'm like oh wow Tom Cruise actually did it and they shot it with IMAX cameras I'm I'm actually really really curious and that's why I, I sought out an IMAX screen now at the time the only IMAX screen that I knew of was the 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 big one the big one that is the only real IMAX screen. When I heard, oh, there's a closer one that's only like a 30-minute drive from, from my parents' house, I'll go to that one. And then I yeah. go there, and I'm like, this screen's not that impressive. Um, and But anyway, I saw the scene, and I'm like, whoa, Tom Cruise actually is doing that. That's insane, right? And, and the movie was a lot of fun. And I'm like, wow, that's insane. That's crazy. Uh, then, uh, you know, he does, like... Like he had done Night and Day the year before, you know that that movie where he's a spy or something with with yeah. Cameron Diaz. Yeah, it's kind of a comedy esque thing. Yeah, yeah, directed by James Mangold. Uh, he had done that the year before, but really, Ghost Protocol was like the start of the Tom Cruise as an action hero phase of Tom Cruise's career, right? Mm-hmm. Where ever since Night and Day and Ghost Protocol, all Tom Cruise has done is action movies or movies with a lot of stunts 
or movies that showcase his work as a stuntman, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like he his Buster Keaton phase, as he calls it. And, <laughs> Does he and, really call it that? Yeah, that's what he calls it because he's a giant Buster Keaton fan. Uh-huh. And literally everything he does afterward is just to either show him doing crazy fighting stunts or crazy vehicular stunts. This is when he does. This is when he does uh, Jack Reacher with Christopher McQuarrie. This is when he does Oblivion. This is when he does uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, this is this is when he does like like again, like all the movies where you're like, oh, Tom Cruise did something crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And for the most part, they were all critically successful. Maybe not box office hits. Edge of Tomorrow was not a box office hit. Um, the only one that wasn't critically successful was The Mummy, which came out in 2017. But anyway, uh, Tom Cruise had started working with Christopher McQuarrie because Christopher McQuarrie wrote the the script to Valkyrie, which was a Brian Singer movie about like the attempt to assassinate Hitler that came out in 2009. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie, you know, is very well known as like, the Aaron Sorkin uh, of script doctors in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he did he win the Oscar for for Usual Suspects? I feel like he did. I know he got nominated. Okay, um, I don't know if I, he won, but 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 he got nominated. That's what put him on the map, and he basically became a script doctor. Sometimes he would get credit, sometimes he wouldn't. And really and truly, he does a movie in the early two thousands with Benicio del Toro and Ryan Felipe called uh, The Way of the Gun. Mm. That was that was pretty well received. It's considered the movie with the best like it, it was like it was like John Wick before John Wick in the sense of like the movie with the best like actual realistic gun scenarios. Um, he hmm. does that, doesn't direct anything for years, gets a hold of the Jack Reacher novels and like convinces Tom Cruise. He's like, Tom, I you look nothing like Jack Reacher because Jack Reacher is like almost seven feet tall and like built like built like a strong man. And Tom Cruise is not that, but he's like, Tom, I think you'd be a perfect Jack Reacher. Tom Cruise loves working with Christopher McQuarrie as a director so much. He hired, he says, you know what? I want you to direct mission impossible five, which ended up being mission impossible rogue nation. And what was the big selling point of rogue nation was that Tom Cruise was actually hanging off a plane, right? Yep. Tom Cruise was actually hanging off a plane that was the only like so starting like starting with ghost protocol and ramping it up with with the rogue nation mission impossible are now like showcasing the crazy stunts that that tom cruise tom cruise has always done crazy stunts in mission impossible but it was really with ghost ghost protocol and ramped up with rogue nation where it's like the trailers would just be like look at what tom cruise did he actually did that and people would would go to the movie to see um, I saw the movie and, uh, you know, it had the added bonus that it kind of introduced Rebecca Ferguson as a as like a Hollywood as like a Hollywood actress. And, you know, most people say like their favorite part was either Rebecca Ferguson or Tom Cruise doing the crazy stunts, uh, not just the the hanging off a plane, but also he held his breath for like almost an insane 10, amount of time. Yeah. An insane amount of time that was the record wasn't broken until Kate Winslet did uh, The Way of the Water. Um, oh, you're right. So, yeah, but, you know, again, it's like, okay. And, you know, Rogue Nation did really well. It had a really great chase sequence. Um, it does really well. And Tom Cruise does something that he had never done as a producer of Mission Impossible. 
he rehires Christopher McQuarrie to direct Mission Impossible 6. Up until that point, he had always hired, like, it was very intentional. He would always hire a different director for each installment because he he liked the different things the the directors brought to the table. He always wanted every installment to look different. Like, you watch the first the first uh, five Mission Impossibles, like, they look nothing alike. The first mm. one looks nothing like the second one. The second one looks nothing like the third one. Uh, I've seen the third one now, so, yeah, yeah. it looks nothing like it. And yeah. the third one looks nothing like Ghost Protocol. And, and like, Ghost Protocol and, and Rogue Nation look kind of similar, but Rogue Nation has, like, more audacious stunts than Ghost Protocol. Um, you know, but now he's like, I want I want you to do Mission Impossible 6. And Christopher McCoy is like, great. And we get Fallout, Mission Impossible Fallout, which is it, it made sense why uh, Tom Cruise wanted Christopher McCoy because Fallout is really tied closely with Rogue Nation because the bad guy of Rogue Nation ties into the bad guy of Fallout, like I said. Um, and Fallout, when it came out, people... Is that the only time that's happened in this yeah, franchise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the thought. only time that's happened. And, dude, like, you were there. People... Fallout was, like... Fallout was huge. Fallout was, was huge. Fallout, yeah. like, was the first time where I was, like, Oh wow! Like Mission Impossible is up there with John Wick in terms of stunts. Well, you right? have to also remember, like Tom Cruise. This is his second. This is truly his second renaissance in a way, because he has. Think about it. You have. Mission. The, what is what? What is becoming the? What it became quickly one of the most popular Mission Impossible movies very quickly, and Top Gun Maverick back to back huge just completely has launched him into his like incredible what at this point is probably going to be a massive third act of some kind for him. Yeah. It's crazy he, to think he about. He did nothing between fallout and top gun Maverick. And um, he, kn- and that was intentional, I think. Yeah. Um, but you know, like dude, like fallout, like whatever, like if people aren't talking about the halo jump, they're talking about the, the bathroom fight scene that, that him and Henry Cavill have, like they're talking about like the crazy, the crazy stunts he does, like the, the helicopter shooting shootout scene there that it's the movie. Like I'll say it right now. If I were to give that movie a rating, I would say it fucks. That mm-hmm. was so, like, listen, C and I did not see that movie in an optimal setting. You know, we were we were, like really and truly when you go to those dinner and movie AMCs, they're they're never the seats are never really great. And well, also they chewing. put the light. There's lighting like so that people can see what they eat. It's a pain yeah. in the ass. It's a pain in the ass. But we were so into the movie that mm-hmm. we did not mind whatsoever. No. Oh, and I remember why we saw it at that dinner in a movie place. See, because what? you and I both had a uh, movie pass at the time. Remember? Mm, no, hold on. Oh, no, I, I had movie pass. Yeah, I didn't have movie pass. I, I had, never movie, had pass, movie pass, and I was like, "This is the, this is the only time they'll let us watch uh, Fallout." Is and I was this. like, "Sure, whatever." Oh, sure, whatever. <laughs> so here's the thing: as much of a film buff as I was, I I never got movie pass, and it was all for the dumbest reasons. I just like I can't do it. It's like I don't know why. 
Yeah, but, but uh, ultimately you were right because like that that shit crashed and burned. <laughs> it ended up doing that. Yes. Yeah. Like, do you remember when they when at one point wasn't there like a someone joked that like. With the movie pass, you could see Mission Impossible 1 while the current Mission Impossible was out. Wasn't that like a joke or was that actually real? I I don't know. All I know is that like movie pass was great for like four months and then they started Mm -hmm. doing blackouts and then they were like, they started doing like priority lists and stuff. It, it was, it was. Well, you know, it, you know. Well, we okay to go into that super fast. Basically, they accidentally made a completely unsustainable model. Basically, because is, Movie Pass. So here's the thing: they made an unsustainable model for a third party, but they made a lucrative model for theater chains, where they're like, "Yeah, let's do a subscription model." That's like AMC survived because of their subscription model. Regal yeah. survived because of their subscription model. Yeah. Like, like, so MoviePass shot itself in the face so that Regal and AMC could run. Could live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Not, I like he said, not even that MoviePass could walk. MoviePass had to shoot itself in the face so that the others could could run. Yeah. The, they saw the gun and they're like, oh, fuck. And they ran. So, so listen, you said Mission Impossible 3 is your favorite. Um, it is. For me, it's Fallout. Uh Having just seen Mission Impossible 3 for the first time. Okay, so having rewatched them all, um, Mm. here's what I'll say. I know everyone, it's almost universally agreed upon that Mission Impossible 2 is like the quote-unquote worst one. Um, Is it really? Well, yeah, because it's like, basically John Woo is trying to make a John Woo movie and Mission Impossible doesn't really work that way. Um, and then Than- Thandie Newton is like the love interest. See, I would have thought with the face-off tie-in that this would have worked really well. Well, well, that that was the thing. Face-off. So, so, so. John not tie-in, Woo, but the fact that he directed face-off. Well, well, John Woo is very much an operatic type of filmmaker. Like, mm-hmm. like he does like these morality plays in a grandiose ways. I mean, for God's sakes, when he does shootouts, there's like birds coming out coming out of the ground. I mean, literally in the opening scene of Face Off, uh, Nicolas Cage is headbanging to uh, some, what was uh, uh, the famous um, opera? Oh, I can't remember what it was, but he's in like a he's in a full uh, you know priest's garb and he's head thrashing to like some highly important operatic yeah, moment. Yeah, but it's but, insane. Yeah, and the thing is, is that that works because. There, there's a level of camp with John Woo, especially in his American stuff, yeah. that works. But there's not really – okay, so you got to remember, at the time, there was only the first Mission Impossible, which, yeah. like, dude, that movie is, like, really, like, relatively grounded. Like, Oh, yeah. Like, first of all, Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise's character, he holds a gun, but he never fires it. In fact, there's not really a lot of gun, gun violence in that movie. And that was very intentional because the idea was that they wanted to do heist, spycraft. So doing crazy shootouts wasn't the idea behind that. So the first Mission Impossible, yes, there's still the iconic, like, taking off the masks scene. That came from the TV show. Oh, by the way, folks, for for you guys that don't know, Mission Impossible originally was a TV show that came out, like, in the... the 60s 70s something like that it was it was the 60s did you ever have you ever seen a episode at all no i did know like leonard nimoy was in it for a bit yes he was he was a he was on there for a little while i've seen i think maybe two episodes and the thing is that i 
it, the differences are fascinating, but I, I actually think Mission, the modern Mission Impossible franchise took exactly just enough from the original TV show as was necessary to make it work because any more and it would have just been comedic. Okay. Because so, the original Mission Impossible series is kind of, it's fun, but it's a little, it's, it's very campy. quirky. It's very campy. Okay. Yeah. So here's what I do know is that the, the TV show had the, the famous, like, you know, the mask. So folks, yeah. like you would be watching a person and then their voice would change and then they would reveal that their face was a mask and that it was one of the Mission Impossible agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing with the TV show is that at the beginning of every episode, they would get a recording that would say your mission, if you choose to accept it, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, this mission will self, this recording will self, or this message will self destruct in five seconds and it would blow up in various ways. Right. Yeah. Very, now, very standard network TV thing yeah. where it's like episodic, but there's always like a variation of things. But the big yeah. thing was that the, the, the show was very much an ensemble piece. You had your master of disguise, you had your team leader, you had mm-hmm. uh, your, your, you you had like the the team right and what what made the at least the first two or three mission impossibles different and what a lot of mission impossible fans of the tv show complained about was that these were very much tom cruise vehicles in fact yeah. the first one famously the team dies in like the first 10 minutes and it's just tom cruise yeah. And he does get a new team with Ving Rhames and Jean Reno, but it's very much Tom Cruise. The, the, there's no focus mm-hmm. on the team. Yeah. Um, that kind of remains true in the second one. And the thing with the second one is that Tom Cruise is trying to make, you know, a spy movie and John Woo wants to make an opera. And sometimes <laughs> it just doesn't work. Right. It just mm-hmm. doesn't work. Like, like I was watching it and I'm like, I see what John Woo's trying to do. I see what Tom Cruise is trying to do. It's not working. Yeah. Um, and then with the with the third one, here's the thing. Tom Cruise was right in hiring J.J. Abrams as the director because he says, I was watching Alias. I really liked it. And I said, this guy needs to direct Mission Impossible. And J.J. Abrams, this is the first time that J.J. or this is the first time that a Mission Impossible movie felt like a spy movie. It also mm-hmm. helped that by the time this movie came out, they were like, two born movies out already it had so. reset like what a what a movie like this looks like yeah but also sh- the hill i will die on mission impossible 3 has the best villain i it's a good villain philip seymour hoffman's good. really really good in it yeah um it's the first time like the the threat felt like something that okay the threat this, was real the, yeah. the threat felt real um what I loved about it was that I was like, okay, this is definitely like Tom Cruise and J.J. Abrams are like, yes, the board movies are a thing. And remember, this came out the same year as uh, as Casino Royale. They're like, That's right. so, so both this and Casino Royale are like, okay, the board movies are a thing. We have to accept that. Um, but what I loved about it is like, this is like Ethan Hunt in a board movie almost, except there's still crazy gadgets. Mm-hmm. And it shot just so much better. Like it's, That's it's true. actually it's actually yeah. a pretty good looking movie. I'll I'll give you that. Like imagine you have a TV sh- TV show showrunner. This is his directorial debut, and it looks great. It looks really cinematic, mm-hmm. right? I I kept thinking to myself like, oh wow, this 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 is pretty to look at. It and, and you know it has some of the lens flare, 
but yeah. not too much. And Carrie Russell's great in it. You know, Carrie Russell's great in it. Um, Everyone's great in it. It's it's genuinely okay. The main reason why it's my favorite is the villain. It's got the best villain that I've seen. But the other factor of it is is that it's like, for me, it's the it's the height of like a modern adaptation of what the sh- the original show is, where it's it's kind of dark and brooding, but it's also having fun at the same time. But man, it's really real. I think, and I'll get into the review about this this latest one, but three also. I'm not saying it has the best action set pieces. I'm not saying that there are better action set pieces than the other in other later iterations of this franchise. But it is the best shot movie as a whole. Number three, in my opinion. Yeah. One one other thing I will say is that it introduced us to Benji. Uh, Benji played by by Simon Pegg. It introduced Simon Pegg to the franchise. And see, for the longest time, I didn't realize that's who was introduced. I thought maybe he was introduced in two. But it makes sense when you see in three, it's like, yeah, he's pretty much... Yeah. introduced at that point yeah he's introduced in three he's actually kind of introduced as like this pencil pusher and at the mm-hmm. end of three he's like you know what i'm going to become a full-fledged agent and then he becomes a full-fledged agent at the beginning of ghost protocol yep. uh but anyway what three does though is that you can see jj kind of pushing the the franchise towards being more team-based but mm-hmm. we really don't get that until ghost protocol Ghost Protocol is when it's like, okay, guys, the first three movies were all... I mean, this is still Ethan Hunt's show, but we're actually going to bring the team element to the forefront. Instead of this being Ethan Hunt going on a solo mission and he kind of just brings these agents along for a little bit. And the agents are like, Tom, wait up. Yeah. This time it's going to be Tom is leading a team. And Mm -hmm. this one had a really good team. This This was Simon Pegg as Benji, Paula Patton as an IMF agent, and Jeremy Renner as an IMF agent and Tom Cruise. It, it was a it was a really good team. It was a really really good team, and you could see that Tom Cruise was like, you know what this this dynamic this dynamic works. I'm I'm still obviously the center of the universe, but <laughs> but having having a team makes this feel. First of all, it satisfies those annoying fans who were like, it's not really Mission Impossible because there's no team. Mm-hmm. Um, it fulfills that. It it finally silences them. And it, it just, you know, it, it just lets lets you do more. And then, obviously, Christopher McQuarrie continues that with Rogue Nation and Fallout. There's a team, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the team is a bit more stable in those two. It's Rebecca Ferguson, Ving Rhames, uh, uh, Jeremy Renner in Rogue Nation, uh, Henry Cavill in Fallout. Uh, but, it, you know, it's a team. And that continues with Dead Reckoning Part 1. And yeah, no, watching this, you see the evolution. And the thing, the thing that I will say is that like, you know, two is weak because there's conflicting visions. One works really well, not as a spy movie, but as a whodunit movie. Cause that's, that's kind of Brian De Palma's bread and butter is like these, these thrillers. It's, it's a, it's almost like it's a thriller that's pretending to be a spy movie, but the spy elements are really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, three is like, Three is like this is this is born, but but with high tech gadgets and instead of Matt Damon, it's it's Tom Cruise and it's just shot a lot better, like significantly yeah. so. And and Philip Seymour Hoffman is just killing it. He's just killing it. But you know, Ghost Protocol is like okay, we're gonna be the story is kind of straightforward, but we're being Tom Cruise set piece extraordinaire, 
and that really just kind of continues in in uh, Rogue Nation and Fallout. So, uh, is there anything else you want to add, C, before we watch the trailer and give our review? You know, I think I'm good now because anything else I'll say will relate to the latest film. Okay, cool. So let's get this show on the road and watch Tom Cruise run a lot. Dun 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 Our lives are the sum of our choices. And we cannot escape the past. Ethan? This mission of yours is gonna cost you dearly. The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. It's been a long time, friend. You've no idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. Listen to me. The world's coming after you. His fate is written. Shall we write yours too? If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. That is written. Ethan, what's your objective? What's your ultimate objective? Your life will always matter more to me than my own. None of our lives can matter more than this mission. I don't accept that. So, yeah, Mission Impossible <laughs> Dead Reckoning Part 1. Uh, mm -hmm. So, right, little quick little thing I want to say before we, we start with our review. Uh, folks, this movie was started production in 2020. And the original release date for this movie was supposed to be 2022. And uh, Dead Reckoning Part 2 was supposed to come out in 2023. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We all know what happened. We all we, we all, all know what we all know what happened, and let's mm -hmm. just say that the this movie kept starting and stopping. Well, first of all, you got to remember Fallout stopped because Tom Cruise broke his foot, mm -hmm. and he had to let it heal before he could keep doing his crazy stunts. Yeah. Uh, for this one, it kept starting and stopping because everyone kept getting COVID in London, <laughs> like yes. over and, and over. 
And there's a recording of Cruz losing his mind over that. Yeah, he, he kind of went crazier than usual because of it. Um, yeah. You know, I'll say this for Tom Cruise. They know how to keep a tight ship because unlike Jurassic World, which was also having the same problem, uh, they did not make a parody movie about the production of Jurassic World that's currently on Netflix. Oh, so yeah. Tom, Tom Cruise has that going for him. Um, yeah. You know, imagine just being on this for months and months. Folks, original the original idea was that they were going to shoot part one and two back to back, hence why it's part one and two. Mm -hmm. But because it was taking so long to get this thing done, mm -hmm. you know, that by the time they wrapped on everything for part one. Well, didn't Tom, they do the uh, action sequences for part two or no? Um, they, they've done some like plate stuff, but they haven't done anything with the main cast. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason being is that uh, by the time they wrapped, Tom Cruise had to go do press for Top Gun Maverick, mm. you know, which was also being delayed and delayed and delayed. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you know what? Let him do the press and they're going to start. They're going to start production on part two, like probably in a few few months or if not like a couple weeks uh, mm -hmm. from now. Uh, so listen, I, I wish them the best and I'm, you know, at least, at least now they'll be able to be done in like three months instead of the eight or nine that it took to make, uh, part yeah. one. Uh, so the new cast for this, cause you know, here's the thing. The returning cast members from previous installments is obviously Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, Ving Rhames as Luther. He's been there since the beginning and someone else who was in the first one. Uh, see, I know it's been a long time since you've seen the first one. It's been years. Uh, Henry Zerny. So if you're like, who the hell is Henry Zerny? He was the IMF official who basically in the first one starts chasing Ethan Hunt because he believes Ethan Hunt is responsible for the agents that died. Oh, right? shit. He's like, okay. he basically plays the role that Shia Wiggum plays in this one where he's like chasing after him, going after him. Christopher McQuarrie had wanted to bring him back as Kidridge for a long time. And because of events of fallout where they're like, okay, we need a new IMF uh, uh, head director of mm. the IMF. They're like, he calls Henry Zerny and is like, Hey, do you want to return to the mission impossible franchise? He's like, would I, that's why he's so prominent in the trailer to be like, Oh my God, Kidridge is back. Yeah, okay. uh, so Henry Zerny returns as Kidridge. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson returns, you know, she's been there since, or Simon Pegg returns. He's been there since mm -hmm. Mission Impossible 3. Three. Rebecca Ferguson returns. She's been in there since Rogue Nation. Vanessa Kirby comes back as the White Widow. She's been there since Fallout. Uh, the new additions are Haley Atwell as Grace. Mm -hmm. uh, you guys know her as uh, Sharon Carter from the MCU. Also mm -hmm. from the MCU, uh, we have Mantis, Palm Clementif, who plays the, the heavy of the bad guy, Paris. We mm, have right. we have the villain, uh, Gabriel, played by Isai Morales. He also plays the villain in the first season of Ozark. Yeah, quite and, well. Um, you know, Kerry Ells plays the director of National Intelligence. You guys know him. He's uh, Dread Pirate Roberts from The Princess Bride. And uh, we have Shia Wiggum and Greg Tarzan Davis as Briggs and Degas. They're the CIA agents who are chasing after Ethan Hunt because he's gone rogue again. Uh, once so, again. Yeah, so that's the cast. Uh, okay. Review time. See, give us yes. your thoughts. Give us your thoughts. 
So here are my fractured thoughts on the on the fracture on my fractured thoughts. I say fractured because I haven't seen the full franchise, but um, I genuinely enjoyed this. I really did. I think it was. It gave me, it gave me vibes of other action movies, and it's interesting that you talked about earlier how. Each time they bring in a different director, and yet this time they brought in a director who's done it before. This is his third one. This is his third one. So I think with this one, it's almost like he was trying to... I mean this... Actually, I mean this as a compliment. It's like with each set piece, he was trying to shoot a different kind of action movie he enjoyed as a kid. Or enjoyed throughout his years. Mm -hmm. Because you've got... Okay. You've got... The John Wick moment, which for me is when they're in that crazy club and all that. And it's all electric and there's these killers all around. It's neon looking. And then you've got the hunt, even the hunt for the Red October reference. A very pointed direct reference that's dedicated to whole, the whole inciting incident, basically, is hinting at the hunt for the Red October. Which, I don't know if you'd go as so far as to say it's an action movie, but it's definitely a fun time. And it's, it's a great movie. One, folks, thing, about that, one thing about that intro scene. I really feel like that scene was added in later. Like that wasn't you think? the Well, think about it. That scene pretty much So, folks, no joke. The literal first couple of scenes of this movie is basically shows us like what the MacGuffin is. It, yes, it does. And and like throughout the entire movie, the characters are like what the, what what what's this MacGuffin supposed to do? What's this MacGuffin supposed to do? And it's so fascinating because I I can't remember a movie where the audience knows what the MacGuffin's supposed to do, but the characters don't. Usually, if the characters mm-hmm. don't know, we don't, we don't know. know. Yeah. I don't know if that was like a like like Christopher McQuarrie looked at the edit, like because you know he was editing this as he was shooting it because he had all the time in the world to do that because of is the true. pauses yeah. in COVID. And like if he just goes, you know what? I I think we need a scene explaining the MacGuffin. I, I don't know. I don't know. This is just me, like, hypothesizing. It's pure conjecture on my part. But, well, go on. Well, what, what do you think? What do you think of my, my theory? I think it's an interesting idea. I do think if they hadn't included that first scene, I would have – it would have been more frustrating because the MacGuffin then would have been too MacGuffin-y almost. It would have been too unclear as to what's going on. Mm-hmm. And – Normally, we ex- uh, um, an unknown MacGuffin has to be has to have a small pre- presence, or at least it has to be contained within a little thing, so to speak. I'm mainly referring to, of course, the Pulp Fiction's MacGuffin, where it's basically a suitcase, folks, and it has something in it, and it doesn't really matter what's in it. But with this, the MacGuffin is doing a lot of things. Okay, um, I can well, reference a move. What were you say? I-, I was gonna say like. Having watched Mission Impossible 3, like, we know everything about the MacGuffin that the characters know about the MacGuffin as as they learn about it. And that seemed perfectly fine. But um, it's also fun because it's not actively doing things to mess with them, so to speak. Okay, okay, the MacGuffin, okay, yeah. my frame The of villain's doing it in that, and we accept yeah, that. Because my frame of reference is, like, in the Bond movies, in the – well, Bourne didn't, didn't really have MacGuffins. But in the Bond no. movies that involve MacGuffins – and in the Mission Impossible movies that involve MacGuffins, like, yes, we don't know what it is, but eventually we kind of learn, like, oh, it does this. And then we're like, oh, but it's it's going to be meant for this. I right? just and thought of a 
funny and thing where it's like, oh my god, that's MacGuffin born. <laughs> but because that's kind of what it was. But what's but, fascinating here is that in literally the first first five minutes, Christopher McQuarrie lays out on the table, this is this is this is the MacGuffin. This is what's supposed to do. And and you don't even know it's a MacGuffin. You're like, okay, what's this all about? And then when the movie starts proper, where they're like, and we need to find these MacGuffins, and we're like, oh, the the things from the first scene. Oh, okay. And you're sure. like, what does it do? And you're like, why Why do we know, but they don't know? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's yeah. just fascinating. Like, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just, it's different. And maybe that's that's what Christopher McQuarrie wanted. He just wanted to do something different. And that, but, well, that, that brings up, so, and I, this next thing I can't take credit for, our good friend Jay, um, who was not able to participate in this episode, he brought up a very interesting point, because we saw the movie together after mm-hmm. we saw the movie. And what he said, and he's right for the record, mm-hmm. this movie crosses the line so fucking much. And what do I mean by crossing the line, folks? Well, Al, I know you do. It's a camera turn, okay? Basically, when you're filming a scene, there's an invisible line when you're going between different characters and choosing different shots to interchange between that you should not cross. Or if you do, it's it has to be very intentional, very direct, and very specific. Okay? And the reason why is because if you constantly cross it, it can be jarring. You can feel uneasy almost. Fun fact, a lot of horror movies cross the line a lot, or have a lot mm-hmm. of thrillers cross the line a lot. And it works in those cases. But... Jay pointed out to me that this movie kept crossing the line so much, and to his credit, it bothered him. But for me, it, it, I, I'll admit that it worked. And the reason why it worked for me is because it, it perfectly displayed the, the crew not being in control of the situation. Like, it just, it just showed them that they did... They did it was the best vis- subtle visual way for people who don't know what the line is in, in, the, in a scene to show that something's not right, something's out of control. And it also, in doing so, you kind of give the MacGuffin more power almost, more authority in a way. Um, because the actual... Okay, this is a slight spoiler, but the MacGuffin is kind of also the villain, sort of. Okay, um, uh, so yeah. I, I I would correct you. Yeah, the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin relates to the villain. The villain is also a MacGuffin, but it's not important for this movie. Yes, that's a better way to put. That's going to be for part two. Yes. Um, but I, I liked the way that this was shot both in two ways. One, it captured the lack of control and unease throughout the film. And two, normally I don't like when movies directly, when you can see the inspiration almost normally, I hate that a a good example. And it's unavoidable to an extent I know, but when it's obvious, I usually have a problem with it. The example that I can think of is when I talked about that was my main issue with All Quiet on the Western Front is I could see all the different inspirations from other war movies and it just got to me. But in this, I was okay with it because I think with a spy thriller or an action movie like this, there are some strict rules that you have to follow 
And if you just hone your abilities in doing those right, you're going to have a great one no matter what. The best example I can think of, of course, is James Bond's Skyfall, where it got the locations right, it got the villain right, it got the action right. And then what it did that was different for the time of a action movie is the lighting is so uh, crystal unique and perfect, and that's because it had a truly an amazing cinematographer at the helm who doesn't typically do action movies at the time. Afterwards, he did more. But that's where that's where Skyfall got it right. And in a way, it was the director's choice to do something simultaneously familiar by referencing other movies, but also shoot it in a way that was almost unsettling that created this interesting hybrid for me that I enjoyed much more than I thought I would. So mm. that being said, I think because of those reasons, I, not that I thought I wasn't going to enjoy this, I, but the th- my main fear was that this was going to have a part one syndrome where I was going to find it really dull and really boring and because I thought it was just going to be a mound of exposition, which for the record, there is a lot of exposition in this. Like, be prepared for that. But because of the contrast that I saw in this, I was able to have a good time and not be bored by it. I, I liked it. Okay. Um, one thing I'll say about the crossing the line thing, I, I, I honestly think it's as simple as because of COVID, like they were so like put in a corner over like, you know, social distancing and like, and like all these procedures that maybe they, they just couldn't, they couldn't be as consistent with the camera angles as they would have been had it not been, um, you know, the pandemic. That that's kind of my mm-hmm. theory, because th- there's like weird coverage where you're like, like, huh, I wonder why they're doing it like this. But I, or or maybe it really is that they just wanted this like a bit of a psychological play with the audience. Um, something I will say though, the cinematographer for Dead Reckoning Part One. This is his first like big major motion picture as as the the dp um he he was mostly done like gaffing work in other holly hollywood productions or he was the second unit dp this is a this is kind of his first time where he's like the first unit dp so Mm -hmm. you know and listen if you've done second unit you're pretty much set to do first unit stuff but again Mm -hmm. there's still that fact that he's kind of relatively a rookie um, mm-hmm. Even though he's been a second unit DP for for looks like the better part of twenty years, but you know, okay. What do I think about this movie? Um, okay, folks, I I really respect Christopher McQuarrie because this guy was like the unsung hero of Hollywood, like. He would do touch-ups on stuff to he would do touch-ups on probably a lot of movies you guys really like uh, and he would never get credit for it right she just wouldn't you know because you know he was a script doctor not the main screenwriter uh he pretty much does uh the usual suspects and then for like Five years where he's like saving Hollywood from their usual blunders doesn't get another credit until his directorial debut with the way of the gun 
and then for another for another eight years doesn't get a writer's credit until he writes Valkyrie. And then like, you know, he gets credit for the tourist, which I wouldn't be proud of that. He gets credit for his second directorial effort, Jack Reacher. He gets credit for <laughs> Jack the Giant Slayer. Oops. Um, but then, you know, he does so many significant script doctoring on Edge of Tomorrow that he gets a screenplay credit. And then, you know... Which that, he really, based on what it was before to what it is now, that's impressive. Yeah. Like, good for him on And that. then, obviously, now he's doing, he did the Mission Impossibles. But... Any any Hollywood blockbuster where you're like, oh, that line was really good, that was probably Christopher McQuarrie, and he never got credit for it. So I really respect mm -hmm. the guy. Um, listen, when Tom Cruise talks about like, why didn't you bring Brian De Palma back? Why didn't you bring John Woo back? Why didn't you bring J.J. Abrams back? He would always say, I really love just the new perspective a new director brings to every entry. I, I just love it, and I think that's a in, it's an indispensable. A part of the appeal of the of the Mission Impossible franchise, right? And mm -hmm. I agree with him. I really, really do. And you know what other franchise also kind of had that philosophy for a bit? The original what? Harry Potter franchise. This is true. Yeah, remember the first two are directed by Chris Columbus, but then you know, uh, uh, what's his face? Uh, David Heyman is like, okay, Christopher Columbus, we 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 kind of need someone new for prison. For a prisoner of Azkaban, they bring in Alfonso Cuaron. He makes what most people tell me is the best entry of the franchise. And then for um, Goblet of Fire, they bring in this really well-respected British director. Um, I, I forget his name, but he did a uh, he did a uh, Donnie Brasco, and you know again you know made the film that made the series feel more British. Uh, but then for the Half-Blood Prince, right? That, that was Order of Phoenix or Half-Blood Prince first? Um, oh, no, wait. Mm, damn, wait. I, I, think, do this I, to me. I think it's Half-Blood Prince, I think. I think so, Okay. Yeah. They brought in a British television director named David Yates, right? And what did David Yates do? He kind of sort of made it feel like it was directed by Alfonso Cuaron, but he he made the film he made the film like ahead of schedule and under budget. And you know what? David what? Heyman loved that so much, he brought him back for Order of the Phoenix. Same thing, ahead of schedule, under budget. And David Heyman loved that so much, he brought him back. He brought him back for Deathly Hallows. And he split Deathly Hallows into two movies. And David Heyman loved David Yates' work so much that he basically said, I want you to direct every installment of the Fantastic Beasts series. Now, here's the thing. David Yates, Ugh. I'm sure, is a nice guy. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure he's <laughs> oh a nice God. guy. But, listen, I haven't, I'm not a Harry Potter fan. But I, my best friend is a Harry Potter super fan. And I know a lot of Harry Potter super fans. They will tell you that Half-Blood Prince and Order of the Phoenix are okay. Deathly Hallows Part 1 is, like, incomplete. Deathly Hallows Part 2 is David Yates' best work as a director. Hmm. And his work in the Fantastic Beast movies has gone 
worse and worse and worse. And as someone who's seen the third one, I can vouch Ooh, for that. It is that bad. That was rough. That was and rough. I, and what everyone tells me is like, yeah, no, it was it was an interesting idea to bring a TV director for, for, for Half-Blood Prince, but the producers really should have brought in someone else for the other entries because he, like, outside of Deathly Hallows Part 2, like, he just obviously has no more ideas to give to this franchise. And listen, I respect Chris McQuarrie. I really, really do. I think he hit his peak with Fallout. Rogue Nation is good. Has some problems. Fallout is literally like the pinnacle of what these Tom Cruise movie, these Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movies should be. But with Dead Reckoning Part One, as I was watching it, I was like, "Yeah, no, Christopher McQuarrie. I don't think he was the right guy for this project because it's pretty obvious that it doesn't seem he has anything new to bring to the table and." I felt as I was watching this movie that it was very apparent that he he I don't know if it was just exhaustion over shooting this for so long or what but it just like the stunts are amazing but they never felt as insane as they did in Fallout. The 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 chase sequences are the chase sequences are are a lot. In fact, <laughs> too much. Um and it just felt like Christopher McQuarrie was like, I guess I don't know what to do. So I guess just put more on the screen. And mm. and the third act set piece after Tom Cruise does his drop. Yeah. It just goes on for way too long. And it just really felt like Christopher McQuarrie was like, I I guess just like 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 I I literally read in Variety that the third act, the third act stunt set piece was 90 minutes long in the assembly cut. Jesus. And, and that Christopher McQuarrie was like, oh, maybe we just released the full 90 minutes. Like, Holy no. Holy shit. No, 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 no. That would have been horrible. And this just shows me that Christopher McQuarrie, listen, I, I, I don't know if he asked Tom to bring him back or if Tom asked him to come back, but... Someone should have said, you know what? I did too. Let's not push our luck. And listen, I'm not saying this movie's bad. I, 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 I enjoyed watching it, but it definitely felt like, okay, the direction here is not as inspired as it was in, in the previous entry, which to me is, I think is the best in the franchise or even the entry before fallout. It just didn't feel as inspired. And I really do wish that Tom Cruise had gotten, I don't know. Um, th this feels like something that if it was Joseph Kaczynski, this would have been, this would have blown our minds. We would have been like, oh my God. Cause like, listen, I, I don't know. I don't know if you agree or not, but I think Joseph Kaczynski is a better visual filmmaker than Christopher McQuarrie. Like, listen, Christopher McQuarrie is one of the best screenwriters in Hollywood. I'm not saying that he's, he's like shit. No, but, no, no. You're but not but that. listen, we've seen what happens when Christopher McQuarrie writes something and Joseph Kaczynski directs it. You get Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. And I feel like Christopher McQuarrie would have been better served to be like, you know what? I'll write this, but get a new director. And it should have been someone like Joseph Kaczynski or, or uh, who else is Tom Cruise worked with? Well, not James Mangold. He was doing, no, yeah. he was doing Indiana Jones. Um, nope. Not Doug. Which, 
Not Doug Lehman, because Doug Lehman would have been like, like can maybe you everyone ma- else, maybe everyone else was busy. You know who Doug Lehman is, right? See, I don't. He was the director of Edge of Tomorrow, but he was oh, also, shit. but he was also famously the director of the first Bourne movie. And you know what's Doug Lehman's reputation in Hollywood? I don't. Every like, I don't know why. He also did Swingers. But it seems. Okay. But it seems like. Oh yeah, I knew this. I did know this. Yeah. yeah. But you no, know, and he never. Wait, is it that he never turns in anything on time or on or on, exactly? Or There's always some like 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 his his sets are chaos, pure chaos. I've heard this. That yeah. they're, they're, in fact, there's there's only one movie assist that that ever came in on time and and on budget. Yeah. Um, Swingers. <laughs> no, no, no. It was after Swingers. I thought that other one. Uh oh. Um. Uh. Jumper. Jumper, yeah. No, Jumper had problems. They did a oh, ton of reshoots. Like his movies, God. they're chaotic sets, and and then during the edit, he's like, "Oh, we need to reshoot fifty percent of this," and you know. And here's the thing, though, Fuck. he has a pretty good track record. He he does like like oh, yeah. like he comes out with good shit. Like like it's like by some miracle, he he comes up with stuff that's that's good. Oh no, the movie you're thinking of is uh, American Made, the the, uh, the other Tom Cruise movie he did. Yeah. Um, yep. But no, can you imagine Doug Lehman being like, yeah, I'll do Mission Impossible. And Tom Cruise is like, not in we, your life, buddy. No, he goes like, we're going to be on time and on schedule. We're not going to do this shit where you're like, oh, let's just shoot whatever. And then we're in post and you're like, actually, we need to shoot like for two more months. And can you imagine oh. they're shooting and then COVID happens? That would have oh, been like the most be Doug Lehman thing to have happened to Doug Lehman. <laughs> That, that you know what then the prophecy would have been fulfilled and the heavens would have opened up no and then he would have said oh still better than uh chaos walking with tom holland and no uh, Ridley, i know that I, and daisy I knew, ridley with a wig <laughs> that that was the thing when i heard there was production delays on chaos walking i looked up the director and i'm like oh well yeah <laughs> like, yeah yeah no, but, but but that i knew but my, my point that is, being said i am excited for the sequel to edge of tomorrow I'm, yeah i'm hyped for that yeah but the point point is is that I could tell that this was not as inspired, like the direction here wasn't as inspired. And, and quite frankly, the story was like at times, like really like simplistic, which isn't a bad thing, but it was like, it was both really simplistic and then like weirdly convoluted at the same time. Like, like, like C alluded to earlier, the MacGuffin, is related to the villain, the like, okay. So you guys are saying, are you guys talking about, you say Morales character, Gabriel. And it's like, Gabriel is like the, 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 the villain that has to actually fight Tom Cruise. Yes. But the actual villain villain is both a villain and like, a, a, it's also a, the MacGuffin, like a future MacGuffin. It's a future MacGuffin. Cause yeah. the, the MacGuffin in this movie Opens the door to the what's going to be the MacGuffin in the second movie, which also happens that's to be true. the villain. Yeah, that's true. You know, you're right. That's and, a good way and, to put and, it. And and here's the thing, like, what the villain? We can't say what the villain is. I I know a lot of it, it's it's spoiled on social media and everything, but I, I yeah. don't want to say what the villain is. I will say this. When I heard, when they ex- there's literally a scene where they're explaining the villain, just in case you didn't understand, mm-hmm. and I'm just like you got to be kidding me like and here's the thing it's something really really topical like like no yeah that's actually that's i i enjoyed that it was topical it's like okay this this could happen no yeah here's the thing remember 
Christopher McQuarrie wrote this probably in 2018, 2019. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he was probably doing rewrites around 2020 and 2021. But this mm-hmm. topic didn't become big until like mid-2022. Yeah, it, so, it was right on the money. Yeah, so it's like, it's crazy. Like, it's topical and it's interesting. But but at the same time, it's like, it, it, it can be a little ridiculous. Like, mm-hmm. like this is the first time that I, like, and I know this sounds crazy. This is the first time that Mission Impossible felt like it had a plot that you would have expected in, in Fast and Furious. In fact, Fast and Furious this had is, this plot yeah. point. Yeah, like, you're right. It kind of did. Was it but in you, seven you ex- or eight? It was an eight. It was an eight. It was yeah, an eight. but you you accept that more in this for the record. Folks. No, no, you Let's do. Clear. You do. You do. Let's not you do, do that. You you do. But um, I, I will say this though that in terms of the simplistic story is that you get illusions that Gabriel and Ethan have a history. Mm-hmm. And they, which I, I was trying to figure out because I hadn't seen all of them. It's like, is this something I missed? Okay, I first, like, first of all, there's no like nothing. This like, like I'm assuming it takes place like right before the first one, like years before the first one. Mm. But they do nothing to kind of explain what the hell was going on in that scene. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, they have history. I'm like, okay, what's the history? Ah, oh, we got to deal with the plot. Oh, okay, then why do you want me to care about this character? Just worry about the just worry about the set pieces. And mm-hmm. ultimately, listen, I get it. Mission Impossible is a showcase of Tom Cruise stunts. That's kind of been their mission statement since Ghost Protocol. I get it. I understand. Mm-hmm. But they always had the added benefit that the story that attached every set piece to each other was pretty good, especially in Fallout where you get this rivalry between uh, Henry Cavill and Tom Cruise in Fallout, right? And then Henry Cavill, like, passes out right before they do the Halo jump, and it's, like, just adds all this layer where you're, like, he's trying to save the guy, the the life of this guy who's been a dick to him throughout the whole movie. Like, that's great. That's what made me love Fallout. Mm-hmm. And in this, it's, like, so so the the in this, what you have is that Haley Outwell is this very very determined woman who just keeps fucking up and at some point you know it's literally like why are we going to this why are we doing this oh because Haley Outwell decided to fuck everything up and you're mm-hmm. like okay the first time i get it the second time i get it at the, after the third time you're like what, what the like okay lady i get it you don't want to be near ethan i get it i get you want to kind of escape but when all these people are trying to kill you or arrest you, you would think you would have enough sense to be like, maybe I should hang with the guy who's trying not to get me killed. It was frustrating. And you knew it was only happening because they needed a reason to have a new stunt. Okay, like, okay, we need to have Tom Cruise do another stunt. And it was always because of some consequence of Haley Outwell's character, Grace, doing something to fuck things up. And, you know, it's like, uh, like literally runs away and runs away in order to like get murdered or get potentially <laughs> murdered. And you're like, you're, you literally heard a character said, we're going to try to either kill you or this person. And she's like, I'm just going to leave. And mm-hmm. you're like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Anyway, anyway, anyway. Uh, no, I do see her character was pretty thinly written. Um, yeah. But 
I think Haley Atwell handled the character well. No, she it's herself admits that this has been the, the meatiest role she's gotten in a blockbuster. Like, listen, she appreciates what Sharon Carter did for her, but like, listen, this 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 is This is something else. Th- th- she's doing a lot more physical stuff. She's doing you know, she she actually sort of has an arc. It's a it's a shitty arc, but it's an arc. Um and but the kind of add to my other critique of the film is that Hilly Outwell has a shitty arc. Ethan Hunt's whole shtick is like, like trying to get the MacGuffin to stop the villain slash other MacGuffin and trying to get Haley Outwell to understand that she's in danger. And then like, no offense, but Rebecca Ferguson, uh, Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames, they're there, but they're not doing shit. And I'm shocked because in the last two installments, they had shit to do. Mm-hmm. You know, they had shit to do. Like, yes, Simon Pegg gets one, like, set piece. Ving Rhames literally just sitting down for most of the movie. Rebecca yeah. Ferguson also gets one set piece. And she they, gets a cool set piece, though. I No, no, her. her set piece is really cool. But she gets one set piece, disappears, comes back, hangs around, and then, I'm not going to go further, but let's just say I was really disappointed what they did. I was very, very disappointed. And I'm like, like, why? Like, oh, just do what you guys did with Jeremy Renner. Just be like, okay, uh, we really don't have anything good for you to do outside of this one thing. So maybe don't show up. And, you know, I, I would have accepted that. And maybe save save it for part two. I don't know. Well, you and I both know that part two means anything. And anything that's happened in part one can be up in the air because of part two. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Um. I will say though, like I know it seems like I'm shitting on this movie. Again, the set pieces are great. They're they're fun. They're not as inspired as in Fallout or Rogue Nation or even or even Ghost Protocol. And I really do think that it's just because, you know, Tom, listen, I get it. You're besties with Christopher McQuarrie, but you should have brought in someone else, someone who could again bring a new perspective and make things more exciting. I, I really do seriously believe that. But I mean, I'm watching this on a big screen. I'm seeing Tom Cruise do crazy shit. I'm I'm going to be entertained. I, yeah. Like, academically, I can see, like, the issues I have with the movie. But when you literally have Tom Cruise jumping off to jump on a train, I'm like, yeah, that's entertaining. Even yeah, if it's, it's even, even if it's not as interesting as it could be. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I'm disappointed that it looked, the team element has been severely reduced. And it's really just kind of a Tom Cruise, Haley Outwell, power hour type of deal. And listen, and see, I would be shocked if you disagree with me. Ace Morales can play a great villain. You and I know this. We've seen Ozark. Mm-hmm. But in this, he's No, this wasn't right. This, he wasn't right. He was this. bad at this. Like and he, yeah. here's the here's the crazy thing. I don't know if you guys remember, the original casting for the villain was Nicholas Holt. It was Nicholas Yeah, it was Nicholas Holt. That would have been better. Already I, I know that would have been better. I am convinced that when they cast Issei Morales, Christopher McCoy was like, well, let me let me write some new stuff because now this guy is around the same age as Tom. Let me give him a backstory. And he just kind of does. Let me do a flashback that makes no sense. Involves mm-hmm. people we've never seen before and say like, yeah, they got history. That's going to give more dimension to the character. And it really mm-hmm. feels like he saw Issei Morales' performance was like, oh, this this isn't good. He's like, okay, let me add dimension to the character by shooting like a flashback scene. And it just kind of makes it worse. 
Like, like the only time he does something interesting is like when the reveal of the true villain happens and you're like, oh, okay. But even then you're like, okay, so then what the, what the fuck does this guy have to do with the villain? Like, he just goes like, you don't know who I work for. And I'm like, why are you working for the villain? Like, how did, how did the villain meet you? How, how, how is this working? Like, why are you doing this? And no, just, just kind of like, I'm working for the villain. Uh, okay, I guess. All right. But you know who was great in the villain role? Who? Palm Clementif. Oh mm. my God. Listen, I complained that that the, the, in the mid part of the movie, there's a car chase scene that lasts way too long. Mm-hmm. But what made it bearable was the fact that they kept cutting back to Palm Clementine's character, Paris. And she does the, the greatest, like, like road rage psycho I have ever seen. She Her- does, but she's, I almost feel like they, the movie doesn't entirely know what to do with her sometimes. No, which it is doesn't. A shame. It doesn't. It really doesn't. She's really good. Yeah. She's good. So, so literally it, it looks like Christopher McCoy was like, Hey, I basically want to cast you as a version of what your co-star Dave Batista played inspector. We're mm-hmm. going to do that, but we're going to have you do a lot of like what I assume were Heath Ledger Joker homages because, well, I got Harley Quinn homages a little bit. No, no, but no. Just, it was, it was the Joker. Cause remember in the, in the club scene, she's wearing clown makeup. That's true. like explicit clown makeup. And then in the, in the chase scene, she does reactions that reminded me of Heath Ledger during the car chase scene in the dark night, you know? Okay. But, but she, she doesn't talk for most of the movie where you're like, okay, she's, she's pulling what Dave Batista did inspector. I'm sure yeah, she was like worked inspector. I'll admit they worked inspector. And she does a great job because she's like, okay, I'm not as big as Dave. I'm, I'm not as big as him. And you know, I, I gotta, but that's why they put her in something fucking massive at one point. Yeah. They put her in something massive or she just kind of tries to make herself big in the most unusual of ways. It works really, really well. And she was by far my favorite part of the movie. They do something with her in the third act that I was like, uh, okay, I guess. And then the payoff, I was like, I don't know if I accept this, but you know, She's gonna she's gonna be in part two and like obviously like they you know when they yeah do the way they set it up we no know you know how like two. at the end of the movie where you're like okay I guess this ends that and they're like oh wait wait we 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 gotta do this and you're like oh they're they're setting up for the sequel okay like mm-hmm. it was so blatant I don't know if it was a reshoot or not I don't even know how many reshoots they had on this to be honest probably a lot <laughs> probably a lot but I was like yeah she's she's gonna be in part two um yeah, yeah and you know. You know what it might have been? You know, actually, you're probably right. It was a reshoot because here's what happens. They probably adjusted it to make... They probably realized we need to have her as an option for part two because they realized how good she was. They're like, oh, we don't want to let this go yet. And I genuinely... And they realized it was probably a very easy way to keep her around. And and one last thing I want to add to, mm. to, to uh, Vin Diesel. Like, <laughs> Vin Diesel, listen. In your movies... Yeah. Even though, <laughs> even though your character in Fast and the Furious explicitly says Letty is the only one for me, you yeah. always have it so that all the all the female co-stars are in some way in love with you, oh, and yeah. it's distracting. Emotionally, yeah. emotionally, yeah, specifically. Like, that's you, the you weird want part. You, it's so obvious you you want a Dom to have a harem. Listen, watch this movie where it it Tom Cruise seems to want the same thing where yeah. he has all these women like attracted to him at least if not mm-hmm. outright in love with him and it's mm-hmm. like 
It's like he plays the di- it. The difference, though, is Tom Cruise's character knows it. That's no, the no, difference. no, 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 no. I would say Vin. I would say Dom knows that all these women love it, and he like pretends to be dumb. But in this one, mm. Ethan Hunt literally is like, literally like the mission. I, I, the mission. He's like a. He's like an anime protagonist who has no idea that four very beautiful women are in love with him, and he's like the mission, the mission, the mission. I mean, that's Scientology for you, right? No, there. no, no, no. That, that is such a great metaphor for Scientology. Look at all these beautiful women who love you, Tom, who just want you to leave. No, the mission. The mission. No, the mission. We got to go clear. We got, got to go to clear. Go. Well, I mean, look, someone once told me that Tom Cruise definitely thinks he's saving the world. Like, in real life. Yeah. Like, he definitely thinks that. Yeah, and, and, and see, in this one, like, because... When I when I left the movie, a guy a guy goes like a guy goes like, he literally has the four <laughs> hottest women I've ever seen like either sacrifice themselves for him, or like pretty much say they want to have sex with him, and he's just like he's just like only cares about this stupid. He was talking about the MacGuffin, and I'm like yeah, but it's it's better than in Fast and the Furious where. Where it's so obvious that it's some weird fetish that Vin Diesel has that he wants all the women to want him. In this one, it's like Tom Cruise is like, yeah, I want all the women to want me, but I, I need to save the world. I need to save the world to show just how above it all I am. I'm above it all. Uh, yeah. See, uh, Tom Cruise says, I'm above it all. And... Uh, Vin Diesel just goes, let's ride. Because remember, Vin Diesel's, well, because remember, Vin Diesel's true love was Paul Walker. Yeah. And I I say that somewhat seriously, too. Yeah. I'm laughing now, but that, we touched the, guys, go listen to that episode if you want to hear our theories as to why the uh, Fast and Furious franchise has gotten to the point where it has. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but listen, um, you know, here's the thing. All my critiques, and I do think my critiques are valid. Uh, like I said earlier, I can't say that I didn't have a good time. I, I really mm-hmm. can't. I I enjoyed the stunts. I I enjoyed the banter. The banter's always good, especially if especially Christopher McQuarrie's writing it. The banter's going to be good. Um, yeah. I'm disappointed that it looks like the team element kind of took a backseat to just kind of make it a a two man team of Haley Outwell and Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. Um. Haley Atwell's character, especially in the second act, you're just like, lady, do you not really like you realize what's happening and you think the best course of action is to run away? Like, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, the vi- like is Isai Morales is not good. He really is the weakest part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh, one other thing, Henry Which is a shame because he is really good in those. Yeah. But uh but Henry's uh Zerny as Kitteridge, like he's not in there, I mean he's in there a bit. Um, but you know, he's in there a bit, uh, and you know, he's good. It's obvious. Like, he's like, okay, instead of, instead of being the, the, the asshole who's trying to chase after Ethan, I'm just going to be the, the IMF director asshole. And he, he does good with it. Oh, something I haven't mentioned. And I want your thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. Shia Wiggum and, uh, and, uh, Greg Tarzan Davis as the two CIA agents trying to arrest Ethan. Um, I got to say. Outside of Palm Clementif, they were my favorite part because Shia Wiggum is plays the character as like, oh my god, I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a Mission Impossible movie. This sucks. Oh, well, I got to do my job. <laughs> and so 
You know what he reminded me of? What? Have you ever seen... You've watched some of the Lupin the Third movies, right? Yes! You know who I'm talking about? Yes. Yes, he, yes. I don't remember the, the, the cop's inspector. name. The, the inspector. The inspector. Yeah. So, for those of you who don't know, there's this amazing f- series of... There's a ton of these movies. I didn't know Oh, yeah. They've been going time. on since, like, the 70s, I think. There's, like, more, more of them than James Bond, even. There's, like, oh, a yeah. shit ton. Oh, yeah. No, to be clear, not all of them have been made equally, but famously, Hayao Miyazaki made one of them before he created Studio Ghibli, and it's a very good one, actually. It's probably the best one, honestly. But it's... The best way to describe that is James Bond, but funny is honestly the best way to describe it. And it's the anime comedy James Bond. Been around forever. I'd say it's not quite as like slapsticky and funny as or as just it, to be, say, just just to be clear though yeah. the the Lupin the Third is not a secret agent he's a thief yeah he's a th- no yeah that's fair but it's still very James Bond esque in what it does yeah yeah the gadgets um, the team yeah and yes. the ins- the inspector this is actually kind of funny the inspector plays like an Inspector Clouseau type character yes and what's funny about it is in that show. He's always around, and he's always one step behind Lupin, who's ever, who's always, who's always starts off trying to steal something, but ends up saving someone or something in another way. And this inspector's always one step behind, always, you know, off by a moment's notice to catching Lupin the third. And the and the, the these two guys re- reminded me of that so fucking much, because. Though it wasn't as comedic, obviously it was. It was the fu- they were the funniest part of the movie. Yeah, like really, they were they were the funniest part in the movie. Shia Wiggum plays his character Briggs as like he knows he's in a Mission Impossible movie and he hates it. He's like, oh god, where he's like, oh, he's doing this to do this to do this, and then well, it's gr- like he knows. It's like he genuinely knows. God, I'm fighting. He knows who Ethan Hunt is. Like he understands. Like he's like, you know what it is. What? He knows he's not the protagonist in real life. Like he's yeah. very much aware I'm not the protagonist and my villain, my antagonist, the protagonist. It's like, I'm kind of the bad guy. It's like, he kind of no, already no, knows. I, they're, literally in his first scene, he goes like, Ethan Hunt goes rogue every, every other week. Yeah. He's like, that's true. <laughs> no, and that's, and uh, Greg Tarzan Davis, he, he was one of the, he was one of the young guys in Top Gun Maverick. He's basically like Shia Wiggum's like, like Lieutenant. And his whole shtick is that he's trying to do everything by the book. And Shia Wiggum has, like, resigned himself. Okay, I guess I got to do this by Mission Impossible <laughs> rules. And, yeah. and, and, and Greg's character is like, we're going to do this by the book because we're good CIA agents. And he's like, whoa, what, why Why are you doing it this way? Oh, well, I guess we're shooting our guns just to shoot our guns. And th- that whole dynamic, like, he hasn't learned yet that, like, like Shia Wiggum has accepted he's not the protagonist and he's got to work by the Mission Impossible rules. Greg Tarzan Davis's character has like not accepted it and thinks that the world is normal when it's really not. <laughs> <laughs> when it's really That's not. That's true. And, and That's so true. One, one other thing I, I do like, one, one thing I do like that I'm glad finally got answered. So for the longest time, and this was actually like Tom Cruise talks about that was very intentional. You never knew exactly what the IMF was. You're like, okay, it's a spy agency, but who do they work for? Do they work for the U.S. government? Are they an international thing? Are they not associated with any state whatsoever? And that was intentional because Tom Cruise was like, listen, the moment we attach ourselves to something, the global box office will suffer because then it's like, oh, you know, China doesn't like showing 
movies about gov- American government agents and a lot yeah. of other countries don't either. But in this one, they finally answer, okay, what's the IMF's deal? And this literally happens in the first 20 minutes, so it's not a spoiler. The IMF is an American agency, but it, it's like separate from all the traditional agencies we know of. Yeah, they get to operate on their own. No one can really, they can't go, they can't take power, but they can operate on their own. They can operate within their own powers. Yeah, and I like that because that just kind of, like, first of all, the plot of the movie demands to know where the IMF is signing with this. Like, because it's like, it's basically like the MacGuffin, every country wants it. And you're like, okay, well, why would the IMF want it then? Are they associated? So yeah, it answers that question. Um, And I appreciate that because it really, like that little scene, that little bit of exposition really made the IMF like the most badass spies I've ever heard of. Where they're like, yeah, that whole line of like your mission, should you choose to accept it? And and like one character goes like, should they choose to accept it? No, no, no. If their country says they're going to do it, they're going to do it. And then another guy goes like, no, they're at total discretion to decide whether or not a mission is worth doing. That's mm-hmm. fucking badass. That th- that was something I really liked about the movie. I was like, huh, because that line was obviously written just because it sounded cool. But mm-hmm. when you think about it, you're like, oh, what? yeah, they could That's just pretty cool. They could just say no to the president. Wow, <laughs> that's yeah. badass. Uh, is there anything else you want to add, C? Um, I think I was just in general less critical of this movie because I liked, like I said, I liked that it felt familiar and different at the same time. So I did enjoy that. However, you do, I, I'll admit you make some very interesting points there. I genuinely think that. And I also, I'm looking back to see how much I've truly thought about this movie since I saw it. And it's not as much as I thought about uh, Fallout because Fallout, I, I genuinely and I, I mean this in an acting way and for the way of the movie, I kept thinking of Henry Cavill's role in Fallout for a very long time afterwards because his role was just such a great. He did such a great job. See, you're so, gonna hate me for this, but when you at, when what? you said Philip Seymour Hoffman was the best villain in the franchise, I just want to say like, no, it was the villain in Fallout. See, I still think Philip Seymour Hoffman was a slightly better villain. I think I respect your opinion. I respect okay. your opinion and your your analysis is very good. Yeah, because Philip Seymour Hoffman knows how to play a bad guy. Holy shit! No, he does. He does. Like he's my second favorite villain. Because he he he. It's the way he plays that in that movie. Just for the record, I'm gonna nerd out for two seconds. He plays it like okay. You guys have been playing Monopoly. I'm playing. I'm not playing anymore. I brought actual guns to the table. That's that's the difference. Yeah. That was the difference. Because you even said in the first one they didn't shoot a lot. And he's like, no, I'm going to kill people. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. I will kill people. No, and, and the thing I liked about the villain in Fallout was just that he just kind of goes, he just kind of goes like, huh, this Ethan Hunt guy just won't die. What the fuck? That makes yeah. no sense. That's that's that is really frustrating. Yeah, you are annoying no, me. Yeah, but but no no. I, I, and and again, Mission Impossible Three, Mission Impossible Fallout. There are things in there that really I was like, wow, this is really good. The cinematography in Three is great. The stunts in Fallout are out of this world. They are the best stunts. Fallout yeah. has the best stunts. But but in this one, it's like yeah, no, they're good. Like the villain is trash. I'm I'm sorry. Like Isai Morales, I love you. You're a great actor. But you were not 
I hope you're because he's he's gonna be in part two. I really yeah. hope they they do some they do something to fix you in part two because yeah. you are you are a good enough actor to deserve to be in the same conversation as we are with the villains from Fallout and uh, and Mission Impossible three because. Well, I also think credit to Isim. Is it Isai Morales? Uh, is, uh, it's uh, let me look. Isai Morales. Isai. Isai Morales. So, to put it this way, the MacGuffin is so big in this because it is big. Yeah. Um, I feel like he was told you have to somewhat play second fiddle to this. So he tried. He I think he realized he had to be almost a little subdued. And I also think there's some information he's given that I'm hoping will tie into part two that he had to do in part one. Yeah, I, I, I really I hope think so. I really think his performance is influenced by what part two is giving, which is a shame. But I think that was part of it. I think the director's like, listen, you have to do this a certain way because of what we reveal later on. Yeah, I, I think, and I think the moment that reveals that is that character's last shot or last moment in part one, there is something, there is a way he reacts that makes me think something's going on. That was in the, part that, two. that last scene was the most believable I felt from him. Well, because, um, okay, folks, this is a minor spoiler, but not really. I'll be as subtle as possible. That's the only time he felt fear. Or he showed fear. Yeah. He wasn't angry. He was scared in that moment. Which that says something to me about part two. Yeah. All right, guys. That's it for the spoiler moment. It's, it's a minor spoiler, but not really. It, but one, yeah. One, one thing I'll add. One thing I'll add, and then we'll give our ratings. Uh, mm -hmm. Just a very minor thing, but I'll say this. Listen, Vanessa Kirby, beautiful, beautiful actress. We both loved her in Pieces of a Woman. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah. Uh, she has a bit of a more sizable role here. The one thing I want to add is that she actually has some pretty good, like, physical comedic moments in this movie. Yes. There, there's a moment where she's like. <laughs> she's well, like, Hobbs and Shaw proved she's really good at that, actually. <laughs> like, she can do that. What did she do that was physical comedy in Hobbs and Shaw? I don't remember. Well, she was just the way she worked with both of them in such a good way yeah no saying. no no like 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 she's a good like stunt actor like she knows how to fight i mean i, I guess what i'm saying is hobson show was almost the practice round for this no in, in this one she has a scene that folks i'll just say this think quaaludes in wolf of wall street <laughs> it's not it's not as extreme as that no but yeah. she does something that like i'm not joking got the biggest laughs in the theater well, because I think she's not afraid to be have fun on a set at the end of the day. No, yeah, and um, and I think I think I just wanted to point that out because it's like, you know, whenever you like, I've noticed that whenever you have someone who delves into the realm of, because listen, you you watch these, you're like, okay, Simon Pegg's going to be the comedic relief, yeah, but then when you're like, when you see these actors who are delving into these comedic moments, like like Shia Wiggum, he does a comedy that is something he's comfortable with. He, he's exasperated. He's tired of, of, of the situation. But what Vanessa Kirby did was like, like, oh, okay. Like, like she did something that Tom Cruise would say, oh, that's very Buster Keaton. And she mm -hmm. did great. And to the point that I was like, you know, it's crazy that this was what got the biggest laughs in the entire movie. <laughs> uh, mm. But anyway, anyway, so what's, what, what rating do you give the movie, C? I... 
So when I walked out of the movie, I was ready to give it a flush. But having had a little bit of time pass and actually partaking in this podcast, I give it a great action movie. It's still, I, I loved it. I really did. And it's it's great. I think it's great. I think I like the topical concept, the, the topical MacGuffin they use. It's, by I the way, like, folks, it's super, super topical. Everyone no, it's, and it's, your mother will be like, oh, I know what that is. Well, you know what's funny? It's more topical than uh, um, the la- the latest James Bond movie. Yeah. Which is crazy because that's really topical. Yeah. Um, but it's more topical than that. And I think that's what I liked about this. So I still really enjoyed the movie. But having given it some time, realized I hadn't thought about this movie that much, and having also... Like I said, partaking in this conversation, I give it, a, it. I say it's a great action movie, and you should absolutely see it in theaters, folks. For the love of God, you know, it, it, it's, it's really, just, it's a great time. It's really funny you give it that rating because my rating was going to be it's a good action movie. Those so uh, we're very close. Yeah, we're, we're very, very close. very close. Like, okay, folks, listen, listen. Like, I love action. I really, really do. But, um, you know, and when people were saying like, when people were saying like, is it going to be? Dead Reckoning Part 1 or John Wick Chapter 4? Which one's going to be the better action movie? I would say overall, John Wick Chapter 4 edges it out because while Mm -hmm. both have a similar problem that they're like less stories and more showcases of their respective stars' stunt capabilities, Mm -hmm. I will say at least that like John Wick Chapter 4 at least has a story and has a very satisfying conclusion. Like like Mm -hmm. the story there is thin, but you know, it's because it's basically tying up the story that we saw in the last three iteration in the last three entries. So mm-hmm. that ending, we're like, okay, John finally got his, he finally got out. That's what we wanted. This movie, there, there is a story, but it takes such a backseat to just the whole thing of like, listen, you're here to watch Tom Cruise do crazy shit. We're gonna have him do crazy shit, and the story really amounts to like, get a MacGuffin, and also Haley Outwell is kind of being an unreasonable asshole. Uh, who doesn't realize that you're just trying to protect her. Um, so it's not as captivating as John Wick Chapter 4. But that being said, the stunts are good. Like, they're not as inspired as in the previous two entries, but they're good. You Plus, watch having them. come off from from the latest Fast and Furious movie, they look, they look oh, great oh, comparatively. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. No, no. This looks... This, this movie is so much better looking than the fast X that mm. anyone who tells me like the only reason you should watch fast X is to just see Jason Momoa chew scenery. That's so funny. But, I like that's no, how no, literally reached. if someone just clips all the Jason Momoa scenes from fast X and put it on YouTube, that's all you need to see. That's yeah. really all you need to see. Here, I still love you guys are going to blow up the Vatican. You guys, you guys are going to hell. hell. Yeah. <laughs> that's so but, funny. But in this one, it really is like, it's just a very like convoluted excuse to be like, you want to see Tom Cruise do crazy shit? Do you want to see Tom Cruise do crazy shit on a train for like, for like 10 minutes too long? You want to see him do it again? And it's like, yeah, and I got a little tired of it. At least with John mm-hmm. Wick chapter four, like as I was watching it, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm getting tired, but I, but you know, Having him, that confrontation he has with uh, Donnie Yen and, you know, him, th- how will he get out? Those questions and that, that the, way, the way he got answered, yeah. 
and obviously the villain there is superior to the villain here. Yes. Um, but yeah, watch this. Watch this in a big screen. Know that like there's not going to be really anything to that captures your attention outside of the set pieces, and that even the set pieces sometimes run too long. Like this mm-hmm. movie definitely could have been 15 minutes shorter, easy. Espe- I, I can see that, especially with that chase scene. Um, oh, and you know, Palm Clemente does a great job as playing like that silent bodyguard brute role that these spy movies always seem to have. Um, you know, what's fascinating though, is that, uh, never speaks a word of English, only speaks French. And I could barely make out what she was saying. Like, I, I'm like curious, like how her normal speaking English voice sounds. Cause she obviously puts on like a bit of a, an alien accent when she plays Mantis. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's been our review of mission impossible dead reckoning part one. Uh, we will obviously review part two when it comes out next year. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe this is a situation like it is with everything else that gets divided into two parts where we come back and we're like, oh, yeah, that second part is like amazing. Like it just blew our mind. Um, it might, you know, which is always a f- that's always fun. Well, that's a topic for another time. Yeah. Like the, the fact that they did this because they were like, well, well we want to stretch out the swan song for Tom Cruise. And now they're like, well, there might be more. I'm like, then, it's like, well, then why are you doing this? Because we already shot it. <laughs> That's true. Now, yeah. now it's too late. Yeah, now it's too late. But, you know, because everyone says that about Deathly Hallows. Everyone, all the Twilight. Has there ever been a, has there ever been a case well, where, like, a, a part one and part two, where it was knowingly being done that way? Not ones later on, but knowingly being done where people agreed it worked. I can't think of many. I can't think of any. Whatsoever. Obviously, you can think of Godfather and then Godfather Part no, no, 2, but, but, but that God, wasn't known. No, no, no. You mean like a movie that, like, if we're talking about the movies. The opening title says Part 1. Like, they intend to do it this way. Oh, you, you mean, okay, so you're talking about a movie where it's it's like, it's going to be at one movie and then gets split into two? Yes. I don't think that's ever worked because even Deathly Hallows, everyone's like, Part 1 is not that great. Part 2 is superior. Anyone mm. who likes Twilight, even they'll tell you, oh, not part, part one is not great. Part two is significantly better. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the the Hunger Games movies, everyone agrees it was awful. Yeah. The, the, the what is it? Mockingjay? Is that, is that yeah, what it is? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Everyone says Mockingjay part one is like totally unnecessary, mm. but part two is like a really good ending to the series. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, well... It didn't start off as well. Remember, uh, well, actually, well, maybe. Hold on. Uh, yeah, I think we're thinking well, about the same movie. Uh, did it just come out? Uh, not just come out. It came out years ago. Uh, oh, years ago. Uh, oh. Infinity War and Endgame. So yeah, there's that. But I was also gonna realize. Well, okay. Does Across the Spider Verse count as a part one? Was that originally gonna be one movie? No. That was always going to be a two-parter. So, but that's what I'm saying. Like, so. Okay. Okay. Spider-verse. So you don't count Spider-verse. Sp- okay. Well, well, okay. If you're asking like a movie that like from conception is like, okay, this is going to be a two-parter. Then yeah, Sp- Spider-verse. Spider-verse. Yeah. yeah. But if you're talking about a movie that's like, it's going to be one movie and then inexplicably they split it into two. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they did with Fast X also. Yeah. Um, then no, that never works. 
Um, and then actually with, with Infinity War and Endgame, that was conceived as a two-parter. It was going to be Infinity okay. War Part 1, Infinity War Part 2. But then they were like, actually, Endgame is its own thing. It doesn't need to be a Part 2 to anything. So yeah. I don't know if that counts. But um, yeah, but, but yeah basically, basically a good rule of thumb. If the movie started off as one and got split into two, never works. The first part yeah. is always lacking. If and I'm, what's funny is in with Deathly Hollows part one and part two, that's the best argument because the book was so massive. Yeah. That's yeah. the best argument. And then like another fantasy series, like The Hobbit got split into two movies and then into three. And everyone yeah. agrees that that's just too much. Although, oh, I thought of one. What? Dune part one, part two. People enjoyed part one. But, but the, those were always explicitly going to be two movies because it was so massive. That was never going to okay. be one movie. Yeah. Oh, you well, know, then, you know, you know which yeah. one it worked. I Where? like an, an actual movie that was conceived as one movie, got split into two, and, and both works. entries are work. Kill Bill. Yes, but barely, man. Yeah, um, but barely, in my opinion. But barely, but, but but it does. But it does work. It does really work. All, All right, right. So yeah, that's that's been our review for uh, for Dead Reckoning Part One. This has been What Do You Think, I'm Al. And I'm C. For the mission! I was actually going to say this this recording will self-destruct in five seconds. Folks, throw away your phones and wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Actually, no, actually, what you need to do is set your phone to factory settings like my dad did one time. <laughs> um, that was a day. Oh, my God. We'll tell about that another time. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.